0: everybody my name is Tudor alexander and this is the dance of life podcast welcome to part four of the once saved always saved series or eternal security as it's called so i'm really excited to share this with you because we're really going to get into i mean every episode so far has been super fun um, for me hopefully it's been fun for you as well if you've been tuning in but it today we're really going to start diving into some heavy stuff Um, And and so I'm very excited about that because as heavy as the topic is predestination, eternal security, and then the next episode, we're going to talk about predestination of evil, uh, which is probably the most controversial aspect of this entire study, right, of of eternal security and predestination is does God predestine evil? You know, how does that work? So there's, there's a whole study on that we're going to do next episode, but Right now, we're jumping into it from the side of election, from the side of predestination, of just in general, how does God work. And we're going to talk about free will. We're going to talk about a lot of cool things. I'm super excited. Um, This kind of stuff is just very interesting to me. So I hope you'll find it interesting as well. I hope it's edifying for you. And if if this is the first time you're jumping into this, uh, whether it's a new topic for you or this series, you're just jumping into it now, I highly recommend going to the first couple episodes we did. I think this is the fourth episode. So, you know, we talked about so many cool things. First, we talked about total depravity, and which is this notion that man by nature is just wicked in nature, and we are not able to have a saving faith of our own selves. We need God to intervene. That's the reason why God does the work, which is what we did in the second episode. We talked about how God does the work in general, Right. And we looked at just so many. We looked at over forty verses for total depravity. We looked at we studied over, I think, forty verses, um, for how God does the work. And in and in general, too, we also looked at throughout history examples of people where God did the work regardless of their problems, right? I mean, Moses doubted God five times. He, you know, he's like, go find somebody else. <laughs> right. I mean, Moses, Moses is like the, you know, one of the main patriarchs, right? Um, Abraham doubted God, you know, so many people doubted God, the apostles, they doubted God constantly. And so the the point is from those things, and again, I encourage you to go watch or, or listen to them if you haven't, is if God had responded to our free will in quotation marks, which we're going to get into that, if God had actually responded to man, according to how Armenians, people who believe that free will impacts salvation, if God had actually responded that way, then nobody would have ever been saved. Nobody would have ever done the job that God chose because everybody would have either quit or not even gotten started, right? And so that, that's really the point here. And, and we also looked at a really cool article uh, in the second episode on God doing the work on this guy who had uh, surgery and removed part of his brain dealing with memories. He literally lost his salvation in quotation marks, meaning he lost knowledge of being a Christian. He lost knowledge of Christ, which is just fascinating because after that he had some sort of, you know, vision, let's put it that way. And, you know, these things aren't like, oh, he must have seen Jesus. Now, sometimes, like I said, in the first episode, we looked at, um, I believe, a Satanist in South Africa who also claimed to to see Jesus, but... Um, as you study that, it, it's clear that it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> so, unfortunately, which is unfortunate, and we got to pray for him that he does see the Lord in some way, whether it's in a spiritual way or even a physical way, but ultimately that he does come to Christ because what he experienced was a serious deception. And that's something we have to scrutinize. We have to test every spirit, right? And so, anyway, this guy with the with the amnesia, or I should say surgery-induced amnesia, he saw... Christ and then that kind of motivated him to ask people about Jesus and he you know he became a Christian again. Now he's part of the church, you know, he's he's a big member there and so it's just a very to me I, I've never read anything like that. I think it's a fascinating article. Uh, but it's just again proof, not that I need it or that I think you should need it, but it's proof again that God is doing the work. If God has chosen you, which is what we're getting in today to reveal his plan of salvation to to work that plan of salvation through you. And in your life, to give you a new heart, to do all these things, he's not going to give up on you. That's the encouraging side. And that's the thing, again, I don't understand with people who are wanting to claim that they refute eternal security, that they're, you know, just so hungry to argue that you can lose your salvation. Well, what does that really mean? What does, what does this losing your salvation mean? That means that ultimately your free will which I truly hope you will come to question after this episode. (laughs) And I mean that in a loving way because, um, you know, we're wicked. Why would you want to rely on your free will? I'm glad I'm not in control of something so important, right? But, you know, if we were to rely on it, if if we had to maintain our own salvation, something as serious as an eternal destiny, I mean, we would lose our salvation. Nobody could maintain it. Right? And nobody can answer the question of where, at what point do you lose your salvation? At what, where, where, How many sins do you accrue? What, where do you draw the line? And so that's the question is, they can't be answered because it's not true. Where do you lose your salvation? At what point? So today we're going to get into a lot of really cool stuff. Very excited. We're talking about how God predestines things in general. We're going to look at some really cool examples, guys. Um, we're also going to look at the nature of free will you know, it's like I said, heavy stuff, but I'm hoping to make it interesting for you, hoping to give you some insight into your own experience. Um, And and we'll also talk about this idea of assurance of salvation versus eternal security. Those are kind of different. And once we get to kind of the end of this, we'll we'll talk about why those are different and why it's important to have assurance of salvation. You have eternal security, but assurance of salvation is is something different. So we're going to get into that. So Without further ado, let's just jump into this because we have a lot we have a lot of stuff to cover. I'm excited about it, but um, you know, first and foremost, let's start with Psalms. You know, we'll look at the Old Testament. Some of these key verses that are just so classic, and yeah, you know, I picked them out here. Psalm seven, uh, sorry, thirty-seven, verse twenty-three. These are all about how God predestines things in general, God's sovereignty, and this is by no means exhaustive. It's literally a, a grain of sand uh, out of the so many verses out there. But these are ones that come to mind when we think of God's sovereignty and predestination. So Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. This is important, okay, because as you'll see, which is the first one already, but as you'll see, it's like, even with your total depravity, though you fall, the the Lord upholds you. You know, it's like that famous, uh, I don't know if it was a meme or or whatever, something going around where there's a beach with tracks on it. And there's a guy, you know, talking to God saying, oh, you you abandoned me. And, say, and then Jesus says, well, no, that was just me carrying you. That's why there's only one set of tracks in the sand. It wasn't you walking, it was me carrying you. And this totally reminds me of that because ultimately... You remember all those examples we talked about in the first episode of this. Moses, Abraham laughing that, you know, gosh, am I supposed to be, you know, the the chosen one here? Uh the prophets, the apostles, all these people had so much doubt. And they fell and stumbled constantly. But God, because he had chosen them, he's not going to let them stumble. You know, it's for his name, it's for his glory, his sake. He's not going to let you stumble. Right. So this is this is what it is. Right. The steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. And keep this in mind, because we're going to when we talk about election, you'll see how all of these things were fulfilled and become more obvious in the New Testament. Okay, Isaiah, let's jump to the next one. Isaiah 14 verses uh, 24 to 27. An oracle concerning Assyria. So this is this is about Assyria's judgment. The king of Assyria was very boastful, right? He was he was kind of basically challenging God. So God is proclaiming judgment on him. But there's more to it. So let's let's take a look. Verse 24: The Lord of Hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it, and who shall annul it? His hand stretched out, and who will turn it back? So, pretty obvious, God's in charge, God's in control. This is specifically concerning initially about the Assyrian, but then, you know, he broadens out, to a more general thing like, listen, God's in, in complete control. Who is going to stand up to God? Using the Assyrian as an example. All right, so keep that in mind. Let's let's jump a little further to Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember, this, this is one of my favorite. <laughs> when I think of God's sovereignty, it's like this is it. I Verse 8, chapter 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all, keyword, of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. So, that's pretty clear language. God is going to purpose something and he's going to do it. He doesn't falter. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, you know, miss the opportunity. That's that's really the point. In the end, he declared the end from the beginning. That is, I mean, that that sums up all of human history, but we're going to get into that. I love that verse. It's one of my favorite verses. Let's go on. Psalm 115, verse 2. We got a lot of good stuff today, man, I'll tell you. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So this is talking about idols, you know, just comparing how futile idols are. But our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he wants. Now, this is is such an important point because we're not going to get into into this. Initially, I had one episode planned for all of predestination. I'm like, no way that's going to happen. Because the whole predestining evil and and reprobation and all that stuff, that is a super controversial issue. And it doesn't need to be. I don't think it's controversial because I I feel like I understand it. Not that I understand it all, but I I, I can see it clearly. Let's put it that way. I feel that I do that. But for those who, who don't see it clearly, who don't see how God's sovereignty works with evil, they have to do all these philosophical gymnastics and and kind of it, it just gets really crazy. We'll get into it next time, but this is this is a key verse for that, which is he does all that he ple he does whatever he wants. God is sovereign, right? Part of trusting God is trusting God even when you don't understand his ways. And that's that's really important. Let's go on. Psalm one thirty nine, and this is man, it's such a beautiful psalm, famous psalm. And we're just going to read the whole thing. So 1 through 16. And it starts, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Just pay attention to the language here and and what David must feel about God if he's writing this. And of course, he's writing it through the Holy Spirit as well. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me, and then the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. This is one of my favorite sections. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Just to to visualize that knitting, just the process of all of those things coming together to form a human embryo and, and developing a new human being. As, as a as God knitting them together. What a, what a beautiful phrase. Verse 14, I pray you, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand, I awake and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me And he goes on, and the rest of it's about evil and being saved. But this is a beautiful psalm, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's not the only one that talks like this, but it, the language is just so profound. You know, David is not asserting his free will here, and you're going to see as we go along that that's definitely the case. He, Although election as a, a word, the elect and, and God you know, having elect, is written mostly in the New Testament. It's very clear that the people, the patriarchs, understood election, and we'll, we're going to get into that, but just wanted to show you kind of, if if David wrote something like this, imagine what he must be thinking. And there's another one we'll get into very soon, David's prayer, uh, which is so obvious. But look at, look at how this compares to later in the New Testament with Luke 12, verse 7, where Jesus says, why even the hairs of your head are numbered, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, this, to me, it's it's a parallel, right? So God has numbered every hair on our heads. In David's psalm, obviously, knit in our mother's womb, knowing all of our steps before we even take them. So do you think that was just like poetry? That's the question. Obviously, it's poetic, but it's describing a greater truth, which is God is completely sovereign. There's nothing that happens, no atom that moves, that God doesn't have knowledge of it, that God didn't have a say in it. Right? And that's really what we want to start taking away here because it's very obvious throughout scripture. And the question is, which we'll get to at the end, which is, well, what do we do with evil then? Right? And that's where people diverge into some serious errors because they can't accept that God is also in charge of everything that's happened that isn't good, right? Doesn't make God evil. He's the authority and He's the one who predestined everything for a very grand purpose. You have to look at it from his perspective. And this is what we're going to do here is start to look at things in Scripture from God's perspective. Of course, we can't understand the mind of God. You know, his ways are not our ways. But we can try to look at the things that he says from his shoes, which we will never fill, rather than looking at from our shoes, which is the big error that I, I feel a lot of people commit when they read things like this. And they try to read our free will into, you know, God speaking. So anyway, let's let's keep going. Proverbs 19, verse 21, <clears throat> one of my favorites. And there's a couple ones that go with it. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand? You know, it's it's so clear. You know, God, and this, I've, I've had to learn this. Let's take uh, two, two more verses and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Proverbs 16, 9 and 16, 1. Verse 9 is, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And 16, 1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I have had to learn all of these verses. I've had to really commit them to heart because I made a living off of planning. You know, I'm a planner. I'm a type A type person. I can plan, you know, it's, what's what are you going to do five years from now? What are you going to do 10 years from now? If you've listened to my podcast, you know, most of my podcast prior to coming back to Christ was about planning. I interviewed very successful people. I interviewed entrepreneurs, you know, several authors, all kinds of really successful people on how to be successful, how to plan, what are the strategies. And I'll tell you right now that these proverbs can't be anything. There's nothing truer than what is expressed in these proverbs. Many are the plans of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that stands. We make so many plans about everything, right? How many plans do you make when you wake up? I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Like, do you know what's going to happen today? We assume, right? And we're going to get into this. Keep this in mind. Keep a lot of things in mind, but keep this in mind about assumptions. We're going to come back to it because one of the things that we do to survive, our brain does. It makes makes assumptions about the world, right? We assume we're going to get up the next morning. You may not, God forbid, but, you know, the will of the Lord will stand, right? We make so many assumptions, and that's part of the reason why I'm going to argue we don't have free will like we think we do, okay? So this is very important, because we we tend to read free will into Scripture as God's free will is actually, you know, we, we read it as if we were God in some sense, Unknowingly, not that we do it knowingly, but we do it unknowingly. So is there anything that is outside of God's control? The answer is no. If the world is intelligently designed, right? If if there's the fine-tuning argument, which if you're not familiar with it, it just basically is that everything in the universe, in the realm that we're in, has such a fine um, area of performance. So for example, um, your blood has a very sensitive pH level. And you don't have to memorize that, but if it goes up and down by even like a tenth of, of a point, you could die. And everything's like that. Everything has a very specific range where it survives, so it's very finely tuned. The constants, the many constants of the universe, of magnetism, ele- you know, electricity, electromagnetism, all these different you know, rules in physics that are constants those are very finely tuned dna it's very finely tuned so fine tuning is one of the and and intelligent design they're kind of related but they're separate those are two of the most popular arguments for god that are very difficult to argue against i've seen atheists argue against it but ultimately you really can't argue against intelligent design it's very clear that intelligent design demands intelligence you know buildings don't just pop up randomly in the street People have to plan them and and intelligently go about building them, right? And so if you compare now DNA to a building, and, you know, this is why evolution is just nonsense. You know, they need some absurd amount of time to make you suspend your judgment. Well, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> I'm so tempted now, but I'm like, no, we have a lot to cover. But evolution is just nonsense. And and so intelligent design, fine-tuning, if that's the case, okay, then why is history something that's exempt from that? Think about that for a second. Everything in the world is finely tuned. There's there's nothing. Like you take a leaf under a microscope, and it's just endless layers of complexity that are very intentionally put together. And that's the case for everything. Now ask yourself, if that's the case for everything, why is it that history... Is some sort of like random thing that's happening, and we're kind of choosing our way through it, and it just kind of ends up based on our choices. Is that really what's going on, or is there something else happening? And and again, another example of this is this whole idea of randomness. We're going to come back to these ideas a little more in deep in detail once we get to free will, but just just want to explore them, open up in your mind, and, and see where it takes you. But you know, when you to, when you toss a coin in the air. We say that it's random or that there's probability there. Like it's a one in two chance you'll get tails or heads. But is it really? Probability and randomness are these mathematical conjectures. And why do I say that? Because ultimately, if you design an experiment and you were to control every variable, for example, the weight of the coin, the you know humidity in the room, the angle at which your thumbnail was you know, under the coin, the amount of force that you flung the coin, the direction and the finishing point of your thumb, where you flip the coin, you know, there's so many things you can measure. And as you measure those things and you control for them, you know what happens? Probability from the theoretical one out of two becomes more and more certain that it's going to land on, okay, this time it's going to land on heads. This time it's going to land on tails. Why? Because you've gone from the theoretical to the real. So probability is just a theoretical model that is good enough, but it doesn't actually account for all of the variables going on, right? And many times it's wrong because a lot of times when we set a probability for something or a prediction, how many times do people predict the stock market incorrectly or the weather, (laughs) right? Because they don't have control over all the variables. If they did, like God, then they could predict. That's why the Bible has so many prophecies that came true. That's one of the things that makes the Bible different than any other religious text. And that's one of God's proofs, in fact, that, hey, I I declared the end from the beginning. So if I speak to a prophet, you'll know because it's going to come true. If it doesn't come true, they were a false prophet. They're speaking on behalf of me when they shouldn't. Right. So So God controls everything. There's no such thing as randomness. There's no such thing as, Um, you know, probability. I mean, there's probability in a mathematical sense, but math isn't real life. It's a model, right? Math doesn't account for everything. And we're going to come back to why we experience things like randomness or we feel like it's random when it's actually not. We're going to come back to that. So just keep in mind. But let's go to David's prayer. This is in Chronicles um, 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 through 27. And David is basically, just just listen to it, but he's, he's basically praying and, and kind of getting ready for building a temple to the Lord. Now, he didn't build it, <clears throat> his son Solomon did, but, you know, he's, he's kind of making arrangements and he's just in awe at everything that's happened. So just listen to his prayer, which is really, I think, like kind of a, of a reflection of, gosh, like God's plan unfolding through my life. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Pay attention to the language. And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. This is none; there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no god besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like our people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be His people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things, in driving out the nations before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him, Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. So interesting. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of, of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Now, is there anything in the first glance, when you just listen to all that, is there anything that says... That those plans might change. <laughs> it's it's pretty absolute, and, and David is really in awe. Remember, David wrote the Psalms, at least most of them, and he he is in absolute awe. He was a little shepherd boy. Now he's king of Israel. Do you think he took credit for any of that? No, he didn't. He's in awe of God's plan unfolding, and, and I'm going to prove it to you because look at some of these other verses. we can compare. And this is where the rubber hits the road, because, okay, 1 Samuel 25, 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So David was about to kill somebody, because he wasn't basically going to honor him. And he was stopped from doing that. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. So God kept me this day from blood guilt, from working salvation with my own hand. That was a serious sin, to, to work your own salvation with your own hand, to presume that you could do that. Now, let's keep going, because there's a lot of other things. In Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 13, verse 8, we we see how David wants to bring the ark you know, from where it was. And basically he he just doesn't follow procedure. He he gets some people to carry it and they weren't supposed to because they weren't Levite priests the way they were assigned in in Leviticus to carry it. And he kind of just does his own thing. And look what happens. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was killed against, kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. So, <laughs> not supposed to do that. Serious problem, right, that happened. Somebody touched the ark, God killed them immediately. Now, David was afraid of that, as we'll, as we'll see later, but just keep that in mind. Like People are taking it upon themselves to do something, right? And especially trying to save a situation where they're not supposed to. Saul's unlawful sacrifice, let's take a look at that. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. This is, Saul got impatient. So he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel told him to wait seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And so he he makes this unlawful sacrifice. He wasn't supposed to do that. He just basically took it into his hand. Why? Because he was getting impatient and insecure. If you read Saul, about Saul, one of his things that he struggles with is insecurity. He's very insecure. And it's interesting. The story of Saul is very interesting. But look at the pattern here of what's happening. Let's go to the next one. Numbers 20, verses 7 through 12. And this is about Moses and and the rock the second time. So people are complaining about dying of thirst. (laughs) And this is the second time. And so verse 7 the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Take the staff and assemble the congregation. You and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Keep in keep mind of the language. Tell the rock, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle." And then Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So then it goes on, and look what happens. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. So this is the reason why, let's actually look at the next verse. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So, what's going on here? Well, first off, Moses did not listen to God. He he got upset with the people, which, you know, they were they were annoying for sure, but he he got advice from God, a command, tell the rock, speak to the rock, and he disobeyed. He got angry and he hit the rock twice, and he took credit for it. <laughs> Shall we bring the water verse 10? Shall we bring the water you out of this rock. Like, fine, you want me to bring some water? I'm gonna bring some water. That that was the attitude. So he took credit for the salvation. Keep that in mind. That's that's a big theme. And this is again, all of this is playing into David's prayer. These are experiences that David had. He knew about, he had them, you know, they were in the culture. People knew about all these things, about what Moses did. Of course they did. It was in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy. 8 through 11, or chapter 8, verse 11. Take care lest you forget, this is when they came into the promised land, and it's a very, very key verse. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have... my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Read that again. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. God is recounting everything that they've been through and taking credit for it so that they can take absolutely no credit. In fact, he's warning them not to take credit for the outcome. Okay, so this is... This is the thing that's really repeated over and over again through all of these verses. Look at Psalm 78, verse 21. Again, these are just a handful of them. But, therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power read that again, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. What does that mean? Why is that so important? They did not trust his saving power. meaning mean, they did not trust for God to complete the salvation. All right? They took things into their own hands. Saul, uh, you know, sacrificed because he got impatient. He's like, I'm just going to sacrifice and-, and take salvation into my own hands. Uzzah, touch the ark you're not supposed to touch the ark first off david wasn't supposed to bring the ark he's trying to take salvation into his own hands he's trying to establish you know the ark and the in the place for the ark and you're not supposed to do that he did it in his own way what happened somebody ended up dying that's why the ark stumbled because god was behind that to prove a point Uzzah touched it was a touch that you're not supposed to touch the ark this is what happens when you don't follow my instructions somebody dies and later in that chapter david is afraid fears death because he's like man i don't want god to kill me too right um moses was denied the promised land why because he took salvation into his own and he took credit for salvation now did he take credit for everything no it was just one little moment one little lapse of judgment why is that so serious to god why are these things so serious to god if god here's the, here's the million dollar question why are they so serious because if God is just offering salvation, as the Armenians believe and teach, and we have to sort of access that through our free will, we got to do something about it. That's not that offensive. I'll tell you why it's offensive to God, because God is in charge of salvation from start to finish. It's, it's a clear Old Testament attitude that God was the God of salvation because he did everything about it. All the times in Deuteronomy and, and later in the prophets when the story of the Exodus is recounted and all the things that God did, it's recounted on purpose. Like, look at all these things that I did. I was the one who did them. You didn't do anything. Beware lest you say in your heart that my power did this, that my hand did this. Right? Why is that so important? Because the natural inclination is for us to think that way. This is the illusion of free will. Now, do we have an experience? Do we have? Do we make choices? Absolutely. Do we go moment by moment through life? Absolutely. But do we have free will like God has free will or we can just choose willy-nilly whatever we want and we have power to do that? No, we don't. And this is a fascinating conversation which we will unpack more and more. But I want you to see the attitudes. It was offensive to take Salvation into your own hands. A big sin. Why? Because it's basically saying you're not trusting in God to save you. So do you think that that attitude would change suddenly with the New Testament? Do you think that all, all the Israelites who wrote the Gospels would would think any differently? No. And that's why you're going to see how the, ele- the principle of election is fulfilled in the New Testament. But it's always been there. It's always been there. That God is doing the work through and through for his chosen people. And he's doing the work everywhere else, but I'm just saying in terms of salvation. Now let's look at another example. This is this is another fascinating thing which is casting lots. Casting lots in the Bible is done many times. And we don't know if it's dice or, you know, who knows what they used, but casting lots is basically it's used for a lot of different things. I want to look at a couple of select passages. Because, again, it speaks to that whole thing of randomness. There's no such thing as randomness. But let's take a look. Let's see what the Bible has to say. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 20. Then Samuel brought up all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Merites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But then, But when they sought him, he could not be found. So, you know, this is about Saul becoming uh, selected as king. And Samuel was told to take lots from the tribes of Israel because they were like, we need a king. Give us a king. I said, okay, do a lot. So now here's the thing. Was the lot random? No. God had already picked Saul to be king. And there's a very good reason why he picked him, which is so fascinating, but we aren't going to get into it. But he picked Saul and he he did the lot to be Show the people, you know, the process of how they got their king, so that they felt involved in it too. It wasn't random. God had already made His choice. So the question is, why did they do the lot? Well, we'll get into that in a second. Let's take a little, a few more examples. Joshua, seven, verse ten, the sin of Achan. So Achan was the guy who they were raiding some Canaanites. They were told, don't take any spoil, don't take any, you know, images, little statuettes, nothing. And somebody did. So let's take a look. Verse 10, Joshua 7. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Of course, God's going to know. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot, Read that one again. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot, Shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he who is taken with devoted things shall be burned with the fire. So, what's going on here? There was a guy who basically disobeyed God, thinking that he could get away with it. So, what what is happening? God is saying, do a lot, and whoever comes forward is going to be the one. Right is. Did, did God know who disobeyed him? Of course he did. So why did they do the lot? Why didn't they just point him out? Well, there's a reason for that. But let's keep going. I just want you to see Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So these are attitudes in the Hebrews at the time, right? So they... They didn't think that, oh, let's just cast a random dice and whatever it is, that's what it is. No, they didn't believe in randomness. They None of them believed in randomness. They believed that God was in charge of the lot. It wasn't that it was random. It was God was in charge of the lot. Whatever that fell, that was God's decision. So why do the lot if you're going to predestine things, right? Well, first off, it's like saying, why have a party if you've already planned it, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're going to plan a party, you have to have the party. You have to fulfill what you've planned. That's why we have a physical world, for God to fulfill his plan. It's already been decided upon. What we're experiencing is the fulfillment. It's the unfolding of the plan. Another thing is, it's setting precedents for things. You know, one of the big types of, in the Old Testament for Jesus is the casting lots. Casting lots, there's a passage in Isaiah, I believe. Where they talk about casting lots for his clothing, and that was a prediction that Jesus fulfilled. But they wouldn't have cast lots if casting lots wasn't a thing. See how I'm going with that? They had to be able to cast lots and, and believe that that was kind of a thing for that to be something to be talked about later and then fulfilled by Jesus. Right, so setting precedents is a big one. And another big precedent is removing control. It is this is the, the profound thing, guys. It's it's this ongoing thing of we are doing something, but God is kind of in charge of the whole thing. Where is the line between that? I don't know. But it's obviously something that God wants us to experience. God could have just said, you know what, so-and-so stole some stuff that I said, don't take, bring him out. He's going to die. God could have said that, but he didn't. He chose to involve us. Why? Because doing a lot with the understanding that God's decision, whatever falls on that lot is God's decision. What is, what does that do in the human mind? How does that train human consciousness that trains us to, to submit to the Lord, to remember that he's in charge, we're still doing something, so we feel like we're doing something, but we let go of responsibility of deciding by casting a lot while simultaneously accepting whatever God comes up with. That's why there's all, all the time when there's lots in the, in the Old Testament, God had already made up his mind, right? It's not a random thing that happens. People aren't choosing based off of the lot that falls. No, God had predetermined the outcome. He's involving us in it to set precedence, to show that he's in control and and to humble us and to keep us in our place. That's the whole point. So we don't have any impact on the decision. God's already made the decision, right? We're not working our salvation. And that's ultimately what it comes down to with this whole Armenian thing and free will is if you believe in free will in the sense that it can impact your salvation, both you need to activate whatever Jesus you know created for us right the atonement salvation you need to activate that somehow <laughs> or if you're saved you need to maintain your salvation through your own free will because you might lose it because you could choose somehow to you know fall away that doesn't that doesn't work with what the bible says it doesn't because ultimately what it means is you're taking the work of salvation upon yourself Now, people will argue, well, faith isn't a work and God supports you. Well, sure, but ultimately, this is what I'm talking about with philosophical gymnastics. People who argue Arminianism and support it will always come back to grace. Sure, because it's undeniable. The Bible teaches grace and it teaches God's sovereignty. But then you try to do all these acrobatics to try to justify your free will. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't because faith... That you do is something that you're doing. And whether you're doing it to come into salvation or whether you're doing it to come out of salvation, right? You lose faith. It's something that you're doing that's impacting God's plan for you. God doesn't get impacted by our plans. That's, it doesn't hold up logically. It doesn't hold up with what Scripture says either. If you could do something to break God's plans then what does it say about God? What does that say about you? What does it say about all these attitudes about taking salvation into your own hands, right? So very interesting, and and keep in this mind, there's no, no such thing as randomness. Bible doesn't teach that, that's for sure. And God is sovereign completely over everything. Now let's look at salvation. Now, the last episode we talked about the Trinity and I really highly encourage It's a little bit on the longer end. Some of these, it's just impossible, guys, to really make a thorough presentation without really you know, being on the longer end. But the Trinity is a, a concept, it's a teaching in Christianity that is not well understood by most people. I should say well, well appreciated. Most average believers. It's something I encourage everybody to study because not only will it give you an understanding of eternal security, you'll see exactly why we have eternal security. And, and I hope that if you did see the last episode or watched it or listened to it, you see that more clearly now. And there's there's a whole free um, study guide, kind of a visual representation of how the Trinity works with Bible verses. If you're into that, go check it out, uh, danceoflife.com slash Trinity. But that episode we covered about how the entire Trinity works together and again, lending more and more weight to the reality of how can you break God's plan? If the Father is drawing you, if the Spirit is sanctifying you, if Christ is interceding for you, and, you know, obviously he died for us, how can our free will contradict all that? It just doesn't jive. So let's look at a few verses from salvation, about salvation, from The New Testament, looking at the Trinity and all the things we kind of reviewed last episode. But starting with 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, this is the greeting. But he says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the whole Trinity, kind of in a nutshell, working in salvation. The foreknowledge of God. God foreknew, he predestined, he calls... He draws people to Christ. The sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit guides us, sanctifies us. Um, you know, He's there for us. He's comforting us. He's convicting us of righteousness. He's doing all these things. He's the guarantee, which we're going to get to a little bit later. And then for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his bread. Christ is the atonement. Right? He, he atoned for our sins. He's interceding for us. All three people, all three persons of the Trinity are doing something. And you're going to tell me that your free will somehow can counteract all that? I don't think so. Let's go on. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It was always God's plan for his son to have a kingdom of people that would love him and to, All of this is about glorifying and loving the son and the son loving and glorifying the father. We happen to be involved in that plan. Thank God. But it's, it's about the father and the son. The father predestined the son to be the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. He predestined the people who were going to be his people before the foundation of the world. It's very clear. Look at, look at Cor- the next one, 1 Corinthians, uh, actually Colossians, sorry, 2.7, I believe. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. It is Corinthians. It is Corinthians. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The gospel was predestined. If all of these other things were predestined, the gospel was predestined. This was God's plan all along. To be in us through the Spirit, for us to live forever, to have a union with Christ. It's all it's all been planned. It's not like God is reacting to the world and, and kind of keeping things for the good. He pre <clears throat> excuse me. He predestined everything. Revelation thirteen, verse eight. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. This is the beast its image. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, it's interesting because King James translates this as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Whereas ESV, which is what I use for most of the time, it's a good translation, before the foundation of the world, people who were, written before the foundation of the world. So either way, all of this was before the foundation of the world. That's the point. (laughs) This was already predetermined. So ask yourself again, if it's predetermined, can you cancel that predestination? Can Can God predetermine all of this stuff and then allow for the possibility for each one of those people to somehow choose their way out of his plan? I don't think so. 1 Peter one let Let's look at that. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and, our, and hope are in God. It was all for God's glory. Now, God is a triune being, so there's a little more nuance to that too. Christ glorified the Father through his work, and our faith in Christ glorifies the Father, but the Father glorifies Christ, too, through all of, you know, that's what we talked about last episode. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He started it, and he's perfecting it. Now, some will say, well, that's perfection in the sense that he fulfilled everything in the New Testament. Okay, but look at this who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a really important point here. Okay. The joy that was set before him. Think about this logically. Okay. And just critically, let's put it that way, not logically, just critically. If there's election and God predestined everybody and said, son, I'm going to give you a people that will love you. Here they are. Here's what's going to happen, etc. That's a joy. That makes sense for the joy that was set before him. What joy? The joy of receiving the gift that the father gave him, the joy of glorifying the father. That was great joy of redeeming all those people that the father had given him, which we talked about in the last episode. A lot of, a lot of verses about the father giving to the son, the people. That's a great joy. Okay. Why? Because they're, they're set. They're sealed. They're, they're his. That's a great joy. But now, if Christ died for everybody, or let's put it this way, if God somehow predestined people, and you're not going to argue with that, but then we still have free will and we can kind of fall away and, and lose our salvation. Is that joy for Christ? Is that joy for Christ going into it? No, it's not. How is that any joy for Christ, knowing he's going to endure all this stuff, even for the people who he knows will reject him? He's omniscient. He knows who's going to reject him. That doesn't make any sense. Especially if we assume the other thing, which is if God predestined people and they reject him somehow because of their free will, would Christ honor those people? Would that be joyful for him to the Father? Would that show any respect to the Father? No, none of this makes sense when you really critically think about it from the perspective of the Trinity. That's why I did that last episode. None of it makes sense. Absolutely none of it. Let's keep going, though. Titus, chapter 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, Which God who never lies, good one, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So God never lies, we know that. And he promised before the ages began. That's another one. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 through 9. Let's look at that one, because we can compare the two. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There it is again. Okay, the primary purpose of salvation is not God saving us because we're so loved. We are. You got to think beyond that. This is this is the the thing I'm talking about, where we read our own selfish little free will perspective into into the whole story. Salvation. This whole thing that's going on is first and foremost about the God, about Father and the Son, the Father giving to the Son out of love and joy and glorify, glorifying the Son, and the Son simultaneously receiving and obeying and listening to the Father to glorify Him. We're being invited into that relationship as the elect. And we get to reap the benefits of God's love. But we don't take any credit for that at all. It has nothing to do with anything that we do. This is how you stay humble. Because otherwise, you know, you you get into a lot of philosophical traps. Let's put it that way, as we'll soon see as we go on with this. But let's keep going. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Hmm. I will cast out after they sin too many times. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Absolutely. God will accomplish his purpose, remember? And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I'd say that's that's pretty clear. Let's look a little bit later at uh, John six verse forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So on one hand, we say Jesus, or Jesus says, I'm not going to cast anybody who comes to me. Then he says, if you come to me, it's because the Father has drawn you to me. So that's like a double whammy of eternal security. If you've come to me genuinely, that means it's not been of your own accord. Rest assured, God has drawn you. And also rest assured that I'm going to keep you and I'm not going to cast you out. I mean, pretty plain as day. Look at it a little bit further. John 6, verse 65. This is, now this is about, so he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is about, um, well, he Jesus a little bit earlier, let's see, uh, verse 62 or sixty one, he says. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, this is about eat my flesh, drink my blood. You know the whole thing with the transubstantiation that the Catholics and Orthodox have have gotten literally, when it's supposed to be just about keeping remembrance of of the Lord. But he he goes into this whole thing and says, Do you take offense at this that I have said this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm gonna have a whole study on transubstantiation, but this was all a spiritual thing. But those but there are some of you who do not believe. And for Jesus knew from the beginning whom those who, who do not believe and who it was who would betray him. So this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. You have a couple things going on here. First off, the people who Heard the saying initially, the disciples, some disciples left. They said, oh, this is crazy. I'm not going to eat your flesh and drink your blood. Because they didn't understand. They weren't drawn to Christ truly. They were false converts, which is what we're going to get into in in the whole ending episode, probably in a couple weeks (laughs) at this rate. But on, on basically false converts, all these challenged verses about, see, people fell away. They fell away from the faith, you know, so you can lose your salvation. Well, these people were never saved. The people who left in this scene here where Jesus was talking about his eat my flesh, drink my blood in a spiritual sense, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good kind of sense. Well, those people were never true believers. The father had not drawn them. Now, Jesus is also talking about Judas here because you know who's going to betray him. he's making a point about him too. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So if the father's granted you to come to Jesus and Jesus is not going to forsake you, do you think you can wiggle your way out of God's hands? I don't think so. Let's go on. John 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, a couple things here. There was a purpose to him coming to earth. Obviously, it was predestined. We know that. Everything about Christ's life was in submission to the Father. He didn't have a free will of his own. He had a will that he lived of God. But here he also says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And this is really important because it makes a distinction between, well, there's people who are of the truth. They have some quality to them, right? And there's people who are not of the truth. And, you know, there's plenty of examples of that where he was chastising the Pharisees. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And they hated him for it because they knew it was the truth. (laughs) But that's the point. He's making a distinction of the truth. Now, does that mean that you have some quality in you that gives you the ability to believe? No, of the truth means you were chosen by God. You're a elect. God has chosen you to unfold his plan in you, so you are of the truth. You're one of the sheep. You're not a goat. That's what it's saying here. So let's keep going. And look at how some of these have to deal with even coming to Christ in the first place. Luke twenty four sixteen and he said to them, "What is the conversation that you are holding with each other, as you walk? This is the road uh, to Emmaus." And (laughs) I love this whole scene. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, "Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days?" And he said to them, "What things? Like he's just kind of playing coy, which is I love I love some of these interchanges." And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And so, you know, he goes on and goes on, and eventually Jesus says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So he's telling them, he's showing them like, look, all the scriptures are about me you guys are, are not getting it yet because the Hebrews believed in a Messiah, but there was a lot of confusion at the time because there's obviously pictures of a, a suffering Messiah and then there's a, a kind of a conquering Messiah. And so they wanted the conquering Messiah. They wanted like David. So they even had this idea of two Messiahs at one point, like a suffering Messiah, then there's like the separate conquering Messiah. So they were not really um, you know, clear. But if we go you know, uh, a little bit later to Luke 24, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? So he opened their eyes. And if you look earlier, um, let's see, where is it? Luke 24, 16, when this first started, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So he opened their eyes metaphorically with the scriptures and their eyes physically were kept from recognizing him when he first appeared to them. Right now, again, if that was predestined, why would God predestine that? Well, because he's showing a precedent. He's by not, by making them not recognize him, they're going to, he's going to force them to engage in a conversation to show God is showing. He has to have the conversation. So he's setting it up perfectly. God's in control. That's what you have to accept is that the things that happen are are for God's purpose to unfold. God is not interacting with them here and, you know, kind of just going through free will choices. God purposely kept their eyes from seeing them so that they would ask and, and demonstrate their ignorance. And then he's revealing the truth to them. That's that's how this is going. So He he's the one who blinded them. He's the one who gave them sight. Matthew 16 verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God the Father reveals the Son. Now, it's more common that the Son reveals the Father, but here we see the opposite is true as well. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. You cannot be born again. You cannot confess Christ as Lord unless the Holy Spirit is doing that through you. You, are not, you don't have some inherent quality of faith that's different from somebody else that has allowed you to take that first step. It's the Holy Spirit that comes upon you, that regenerates you, and that gives you a chance to have faith and express the truth and to see the truth. It's God that's doing the work, just as we've done over and over again. Now, let's take a look at election. Okay, so let's go on with election. And you can see clearly from all the things we've talked about that God is doing the work. God is predestining everything, even things like a lot are predestined. Why? To show precedence, to show his plan. We are experiencing his plan He's unfolding it. We are observers and experiencers. We go through life and experience things. We're not influencing his plan. He's not reacting to us whatsoever. Now, election in the Old Testament is, there isn't that many mentions of the word elect. The KJV has a few. Um, Genesis 18, verse 19 for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is Abraham, and God chose him, pretty clear, just like it is with everybody else. Now, did are there times when it seems like Abraham's making choices or doing things? Yes, of course. That's our perspective. But the bigger picture is that God's in control. Now, again, where is the line between that? Who knows? That's the mystery. And thank God that it is a mystery. Can you imagine if if God had said, here's the extent of your will, of your individuality? No, God's left it a mystery on purpose so that we we can feel like we have a, a sense of self. I think he very much intended that. But that doesn't mean that we have free will like he has free will. So that's the point. Isaiah 54, or sorry, 45, verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and the and Israel my chosen. Now in the KJV, uh, I, I think it's, yeah, my elect. So that word is, is not used so much in the Old Testament, but it is a couple times. But my chosen, same thing. I'll call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So God has chosen Israel. There's a remnant of Israel, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 30. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. There's the remnant of Israel. That's the whole thing that God's chosen a remnant from the people he's judged in Israel. There's the prophets, the kings, the priests. All of them are anointed. There's always an anointing process. God is the one choosing through and through, at least anytime there's a description of it. How many people, again, we we talked about in the first episode, how many people in the Bible who were chosen despite their shortcomings. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Job. (laughs) Job complained about God, you know, God's sense of justice. He questioned God. Abraham, Gideon, the apostles, all of them questioned God, doubted God, tested God countless times. Peter denied Christ three times. Is Peter in hell? No. Peter... He's a human being, he's flawed, he's sinful like everybody else, but Peter had the Holy Spirit, so despite his doubts and failures, he was saved. Why? Because God is doing the work. If God had, this is what, again, it reduces to, if God had responded to Peter according to how people believe free will works, nobody would ever be saved. Nobody would ever be saved. If God had chosen, come to Moses and said, hey, I've chosen you. Moses said, no, you need to find somebody else. I can't speak, please. I I don't want to do this. And God would have said, okay, well, nothing I can do. I guess you exercise your free will. I better not, you know, overlay on top of that. I mean, that's just nonsense. There's nowhere in the Bible that that happens. Nowhere. Because it can't. Because God is sovereign. Now, if we look at New Testament, this whole idea of God choosing in having elect uh, and elect people people who's chosen to, to save that becomes much more obvious especially with how we understand the trinity and salvation which again last episode we talked about how the whole trinity is involved in salvation in the elect but let's look at a couple of verses so Matthew 24 22 through 24 this is about the end times but and if those days had not been cut short no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. So this is verse 22, but it's for the sake of the elect that the tribulation is cut short. Otherwise, nobody would be left alive. So that's important to understand because there's obviously an elect people that are being cared for and considered by God. But let's keep going. Mark 13, verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Who is he going to gather? The elect, the people he's chosen. Not the people who had more faith than than their neighbors. It's the ones who God has chosen, unconditionally, mind you. And we'll get into that. But Luke chapter 8, 18, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? There it is again. Let's look at Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Remember from the Trinity episode that the Father is the one who justifies. The Father draws calls. He's choosing them. He's justifying them. Right? So if God has justified you and you're somebody that God chose, does that mean you can reverse that? After God has justified you? Before before the world even began? Hmm. I don't know about that. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This talks about predestination of evil and reprobation, which we'll get into next time. That's a huge can of worms. But again, the elect obtained it. The elect, the chosen elect. 2 Timothy um, chapter two, verse ten. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. One Peter one, Peter, an apostle of Christ of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I mean, all these all these show that the apostles believe in election, just like David and just like all the Old Testament fathers. 2 John 1 verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth. 2 John 1 verse 13, final greetings. The children of your elect sister greet you. Okay, so election is obvious. It's, It's a teaching throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. These are all types. The Old Testament was a type. The election of the Old Testament of Israel was a type to be fulfilled in Christ as we are elect through his plan of salvation. God, history is not about us. You got to get this through you, okay? This is a big point. History is not about us. It is about his story. It is about God's choices, not our choices. This is, again, the fundamental paradigm we have to shift. In how we read the Bible and how we think about these many things, because we have this fatal view of free will. And and, and we look at things and say, gosh, you know, it must be this way, because that's how I see things. Well, that's not the way things work. Free will is a certain way for God, and it's a certain way for us. Okay, God is choosing people and things to happen in history. That's very clear. He's predestining everything. He's designed the world intelligently at every microscopic level. History is not out of his control. It's his story. It's about his story of salvation, his story of the father to the son, the son to the father. That's the story of history, and we're being involved in that You know, in a secondary way, but we are important, obviously. We're very important. But we are chosen, and if you're chosen, what does that mean? That means eternal security. That means you can't lose your salvation. That would That's not consistent with the grandiose plan that's revealed in Scripture. It's not about our choices. It's about God's choices. Those are the ones that have consequences. So, you know, think about it this way. If Here's another thought to think. If God is the one that's making the choice, all choices, because he's predestined everything, He makes the best choices possible. So if he has control over everything, which it says, you know, everything was, John 1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. Anything made that was made. Everything in the world, every atom, every little cell in your body was made by God and directed by God. He upholds the universe with the word of his power, right? So if he created everything and he's perfect and he's perfectly moral and just, then God choosing the outcome should not be a problem. This is why I said again that Arminianism is about pride. It's about pride and it's about defending this this turf of, you know, I get to do something too or I have control. Well, you don't. You have an experience but you don't have control like God has control. Control is an illusion, man. You know, omniscience, look, predestination and omniscience go hand in hand. God cannot be who he is and not predestine things. Think about it. Omniscience means, you know, you know everything, so therefore you're going to make the best choice possible. You're not going to make the worst choice or like a subpar choice. Especially the father to the son, like if the father's going to, you know, give to the son, like the best gift possible, all of this, do you think he's going to like not make the best choices? Of course, he's going to make the best possible choices because he's omniscient. And if he's making the best possible choices, he's made them already. And things are moving towards the best possible outcome. God is not a million armed octopus reacting to reality just faster than everybody because, you know, he can and just kind of steering it along as if it's reality itself is sort of this uncontrolled thing. No, that's not how it works. God has predestined it and we are just experiencing the unfolding of that plan and how beautiful that is. Thank God. Because if we could lose our salvation, we would. If we could impact the plan, we would, trust me you know think about it again he, if if he predestined all of this if the father predestined all of this for the son and but then the son died for everybody how does that work with with the trinity it doesn't that means that the son died for more than who the father predestined for him that doesn't make any sense there's discord in the trinity with this view of of free will impacting your salvation It doesn't make sense. You know, Trinity is the only way to look at this. And if you understand that God is omniscient and omnipotent, then predestination is the only answer. It's the only way that things could go. So what does that say about free will? Well, it says a lot of things and I'm thinking we'll do this next time. This was quite an episode. I thought we were going to get into free will, but I'll, I'll talk about it next time. I think it's a good point to stop here. Um, I'll just say this before we close because next time next week we'll just jump into free will and it's going to be a lot of other things. It, it'll be some scripture, but it, it'll be mostly other things we'll, we'll look at. But I'll, I'll leave you with this. God has freedom to do whatever he wants. He's, he's free of influence. First off, he's morally perfect. And he's outside of time and space. He created time and space. So if it's anybody that's free to act without influence, it's him. That's the kind of free will that we think we have. And that's why it leads to all these problems in theology, like Arminianism. Now, I don't like the word Calvinism because I don't really believe in everything Calvin taught. But it's, it's predestination, eternal security, okay? predestining evil and reprobation. Yeah, there's a purpose for that, believe it or not, <laughs> which we'll get into. But ultimately, when we look and read scripture, we read it with the lens that we have free will, free of influence. We can just make a choice out of thin air. That's what the notion of free will is, that you're can, that you free to choose, that somehow there's, you know, equal possibility between two options. And, you know, You can just choose it from nothing. It doesn't work that way, though. And there's a lot of stuff. There's so many articles and things I want to go with you. Next time, again, I didn't anticipate this being that long, but we'll we'll jump into some really cool stuff. I hope this has been edifying for you, but again, I'll leave you with this. There is less and less room for this classic libertarian free will as science advances, and we start to see how many things are actually controlled and they're out of our control, how the subconscious mind works, how our brain works, you start to realize that you really aren't doing what you think you're doing. We tend to think of ourselves better than we actually are. That's a human flaw. We, we tend to do that, right? It's a psychological process. And Christianity and the Bible teaches us to not rely on our own plans because the heart is wicked. So this is what you have to address, which is we don't have the free will that God has. And when you go and read scripture truly the way it should be from God's perspective, again, we can't put ourselves in his shoes completely, but we can read from the perspective of the big picture of predestination and trusting that God's decision, even in times when we don't agree with something that we're reading about evil or judgment or something, trusting in God's character, that he has a purpose for something and he's made the best choice possible. That's how we truly get the truth, how we get the perspective on everything. Otherwise, you start reading and say, oh, well, you know, I don't agree with God doing that. So I have to come up with some philosophical reason why God is sovereign, but then, you know, we still have certain choices and those people just kind of chose wrong. And you know, that doesn't, that leads to all kinds of problems. As I, as hopefully I've shown so far in this series, it leads to inconsistency in the Trinity. It leads to, You know, all kinds of inconsistencies with scripture, about God's character. And we're going to get into it more next time when we really unpack this idea of free will. I'll show you point by point, and hopefully I'll make you question it. (laughs) But again, there's no problem in questioning it. Who cares? Even if somebody told you your life moment by moment, day by day, you would still have to live it out you see that? You still have to live it out. You still, We still have an experience of moment to moment where it seems like a surprise. And thank God for that. We still have a sense of ourselves. That doesn't change. Nothing changes. All that changes is your assurance and your sense of security in God's plan. It's, what changes is your ability to trust God. Whereas if you allow for the possibility that you do anything, that brings, in, that brings in hell, honestly, because then you're just like, well, what do I have to do to maintain my salvation? You're not trusting God. And remember how the Old Testament people felt about that. It was a serious sin. Why? Because God is a God of salvation. He completes salvation. You're robbing that role from him. Of course, you're not going to actually rob it, but in our minds we do when we, when we think that we have to maintain our salvation or that we can lose our salvation. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. So anyway, I hope this has been a blessing for you. These topics are really fun to do, but boy, they're boy, they're drawn out, aren't they? So next time we'll talk about free will, we'll really get into it. We'll review a little bit of this stuff. But remember, God is doing the work. That's all I want you to remember is God is doing the work. And don't worry about what he's doing. Don't worry about what he's doing. Worry about connecting to him and trusting him. That's what we should be worrying about. So... God bless. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time.